Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a gloomy fall Monday in the mountains of Utah. A quick content warning. There is some swearing in this episode, so if you happen to be my mother or listening with little kids around, maybe come back to this one. If you don't mind, then forge ahead. My guest this week is fantasy author and a friend for many years, Robert Jackson Bennett. Robert's career began back in 2010 with the award-winning Mr. Shivers and the Company Man, followed by The Troop and American Elsewhere. He then took a turn into epic fantasy with the Divine Cities trilogy and is currently two books into the Founders trilogy, which concludes in June 2022 with Lachlan's. Robert and I talk about his early work in literary fantasy, keeping his day job while navigating his successful writing career, and his interests in technology, climate change, and politics. We also cover the way that we use our writing to discover the way we feel about the world, and condensing real-world problems into digestible narratives. Enjoy my conversation with Robert Jackson Bennett. How are the kids doing? They're doing good. Um, they were well, well. I say that we all have colds, um, and uh, we are kept aloft by like Motrin and Advil cold inside us. Uh, we're kind of getting over it now, though. But um, yeah, there we're we're in that weird spot where like all of the like after school stuff that you could do in the fall has wound down, mm-hmm. and there's a period where you can't do anything until like the spring because the sun sets at like five thirty now. And there's just no way to make that work. So I'm, I'm having to spend a lot more time with my children. So I guess the short answer as to how they're doing is bad because they're with me all the time. It probably isn't that fun. <laughs> I, I'm always baffled by any of my friends that have children who are also writers because writing tends to have, even when they have day jobs, writing happens at home. And I, I'm baffled that you guys can get literally anything done. Yeah. I have to admit like, like, um, I had posted about like Lachlan's because I wrote that while COVID was ongoing. And I was like, man, it was really hard to finish this book uh, because of the pandemic. And I have a friend who has kids, but his kids are older. Like one's going to college. And he said that he like looked at my tweet and was just like, what the hell is he talking about? What a baby. And then he was like, oh, wait, he's got a four-year-old and a nine-year-old. And I was like, yeah, Uh, because like we spent the whole pandemic, like we had, I'd say about 20 alarms set at all times. Uh, to let us know when one of our children's classes or like were about to start and to make sure that they were uh, that they had the right browser things like brought up so they could learn about like math while we were also doing our day jobs and while I was also trying to write. So, yeah, that was totally crazy. Now it's a little bit easier. Like I like I at times I won't come home for lunch and I'll write at work, which is nice because I like I um, I my office is basically four walls, no windows and a door, um, which is actually pretty good. I find when I have windows, I'm not as good. 
So that gives me a moment for me to get out of, you know, the atmosphere of needing to do something. Like if I'm home, I'm like, I should really be doing something. I should be doing laundry. I should be doing the dishes. There's a lot of things that I could be doing better rather than trying to write like a like tale about lasers and like, like wizards and stuff. And then I have to like remind myself that that sort of stuff is paying for the, the, the house, at least in part. Um, so that's always good to keep in mind, but yeah, COVID was hard. It's now a lot easier. Do you feel like, um, do you, cause I know that you, you take a lot of things very seriously, a lot of politics, a lot of tech stuff, uh, you know, climate change, things like that. And I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about these things and just kind of what you mentioned there a second ago, do you feel, do you ever kind of find yourself going what I do for a living, you know, as a writer feels so superfluous, like, and time wasty versus, you know, these things that are like important in the real world. Um, a little bit like what I find is that there's a lot of very smart people who are out there who are absorbing all the things that are happening in the world in technology and in society and in climate and whatever. And what they do with their time is they write about them. They take all these numbers in and they write forecasts. They write like narratives themes and things like that saying like, here's what I think is happening here. Here's how I think that the future plays out. And I realized that like, that's kind of what I'm doing to a certain degree. Cause like I try and take, like I talk about these things a lot because I find them kind of interesting or quite interesting. Um, I think that it is, is interesting to sort of pluck at the machines that make the world go. And um, when I write my books, I'm kind of doing the same thing where I'm trying to take an idea that is in the real world that is bothering me or I find fascinating and, and trying to figure out how I feel about things. There's a, a, a quote by like Neil Gaiman, I think, where he said he wrote that he writes books to find out what he thinks about things. And I think that that's kind of true. It's like a simulated reality where I can take problems that I'm thinking about right now and make it all go see how the model runs, but also I throw in like sex and puns <laughs> and lasers and magic and wizards and lasers and wizards and kissing all kinds of fun stuff. Right. I, I think I've recently discovered that I do the same thing and it's one of those weird things that I just never thought about before. And sometime probably in the last year, something clicked over in my brain and I was like, Oh man. Yeah. Like when I'm writing, like I'm, I'm genuinely trying to figure out what I feel about the world. You know, when I when I have two characters have especially like if I have two characters have like a discussion on morality, it's usually because that discussion is happening in my brain about something that's really happening. And I want to feel it out. Yeah. And I find that those portions always require the most amount of like rewrites and like editing. Oh, yeah. Because trying trying to figure out how you feel about things is very messy and it's not pretty. Um, and so usually like I have to go back and. You know, you can kind of feel where things are weak or when they're flabby or when someone is trying to express like an idea here or their like arc is as a character is supposed to like articulate something. And I'm really only 20 to 40 percent there and I need to rethink that. So, yeah, I guess I guess what I'm saying is I try to do that is fulfilling, but it takes a lot of work and I'm not totally sure if it pays off. But it's um it's kind of what makes me want to sit down, like like an idea that I had just recently about trying to write um, a Norse version of an old story, like one that was like a child story, but trying to write it where it'd be dark and violent and like spooky. And it's a fun idea, but it's only superficially fun. 
like I don't know how to write it and yet and have it uh, ask questions that I find to be interesting. So I'm just kind of going to wait and see if it ferments and see if I can find a good question in there. But if I don't find something interesting, then I'm probably not going to write it. Yeah, we talk a, l- a little bit because we've got a Slack together and we we talk a little bit about kind of sometimes what we're working on and what we're thinking about. And uh, and something I've been thinking about recently, actually, funny enough, watching the Wheel of Time show is kind of the roots of fantasy in very weird stuff, you know, because because I, I feel like there's a lot of us who think about fantasy kind of from the Brandon pers- Brandon Sanderson perspective of this is a codified, you know, magic systems and things like that. And I've been thinking a lot about the weird that ends up in fantasy. And I, I realized that you actually do that very well, it, blending kind of this codified, you know, these, these uh, magic systems with stuff that's genuinely bizarre. Um, you know, like the cities trilogy has some really odd stuff in it, but in, not in a way that pulls you out or throws you out of the story. Um, like, like I'm, I'm thinking very specifically of, I think it's book one where like an ancient God creature gets loose in the river under the ice. Yeah. Like there's some really cool stuff. And I, I wonder, I was kind of curious how you keep yourself digging into the weird stuff but also keep kind of one foot uh solid on the narrative and in in the real life sort of stuff that you're struggling with and you're thinking out um you know like the like because we're both very interested in similar things in terms of revolution and change and industrialization and all that stuff um but you've always had a little bit further into kind of the fantasy weird. And I really like that. So there's two veins of thought on this. And because there was uh, like an idea that was put forward by Neil Stevenson, I think, which he said that, that the difference between like fantasy and science fiction is whether or not it looks forward or if it looks backward. Because the idea of like fantasy is that it functions a lot more like faith, a lot like religion and that there was, an old, perfect, like ancient world that went on for for like, like eons, and then there was some sort of sin committed. It's all fallen to pieces, and now we're in this horrible present, and we have to go back to the past. Like the idea of like trying to progress and move from the future is not really present in a lot of those sorts of stories. Um, like in Lord of the Rings, like the future looks kind of like bland and crappy because humans are going to rule everything, and it sucks. Um, and then on the other end, you have science fiction, which suggests that the past was super garbage. Um, and it is only through our like imaginations and uh, our like innovation that we have found a way forward. Um, and, um, I kind of like, I kind of feel like high fantasy falls into that first category a lot. Like high fantasy feels very, um, uh, to, to me. Uh, feels very based like in the idea of an ancient perfect that we're trying to return to. And as such, I find myself writing like fantasy that tries to be more about human created, like using like magic to fulfill human needs. And it is the human beings that make it weird. That's kind of what I've done in Foundryside. For uh, like the Divine Cities in that one, the weirdness comes from the sudden like awareness of how strange these old tales were. And like, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about like, uh, like what the angels looked like. Like they had <laughs> like, like 20 eyes and like a face full of wings and all kinds of weird crap. And you, and so you start to 
like, 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 like the fun of that series is the idea that the past is wonderful and you want to go back to that. And then being confronted with what the past was actually like and being like, this is weird as shit and I don't like it. Um, and so that's kind of like the whole theme of that story is that each time that they get close to what we would think of in like a fantasy book as magic, it is weird and bad. Like there's like, um, uh, it's been a long time since I wrote that book. But there's a part where they meet this creature that is a shapeshifter that is kept uh, like behind uh, like a, a like a ring of salt. And like if I recall, like it has webbed feet and a giant nose and no eyes and no mouth. And it has like no bones or something like that. And it's a super weird scene. And now that I look back at it, I'm like, I can't believe I put that in there because that is weird as hell. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of what I think I was trying to do there, where I'm trying to use the weird to invoke how like how humans are creating such strange things and how we try and like edit ourselves like in the present to reconsider how this all looked like. It actually wasn't that weird. Like, no, the angel had 16 eyes and a face full of wings. Um, that's kind of what I'm trying to do there. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I, I never really thought about kind of fantasy having that uh, kind of that Genesis out of, out of, you know, bl- biblical stuff, you know, like, because, biblical stuff you're right it's so weird and it it goes in weird directions but it it does it kind of does have that same thing that we're talking about in terms of uh you know like an an ancient ideal and then you know like the the fallen you know man or fallen civilization all of that Mm -hmm. it definitely links in there very closely um and I, 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 it's got to be it's got to be something kind of like in our psyche you know our human psyche that that just reaches for that. And maybe it's, I, well, I was about to say, maybe it's a Christian Western thing, but I don't think it is at all. Like religion all over the world gets super weird at times. Yeah. I think that like time is weird and a way that we perceive time is very strange. And this is why you see people saying like, boy, the eighties were actually really good or the nineties were really good. And what that really means is I was like, uh, like a teenager, uh, like in this time period. And, Things were fun and felt new, and now things don't feel fun and new anymore, and there's a lot more problems. Um, and I think that we also kind of recap, like the past is known, and so it doesn't feel as frightening to us as it did when the people lived uh, lived through it. Um, and there's like a debate right now that's happening about America, about like, is America a, a, a dystopia right now? And the real question there is like, for who? Because if you were to go back to the 50s and be like, is this uh, like a uh, like a dystopia? I think that most like probably white people would say like, the 50s were a great time to be alive, great time to be like American, but obviously not for everybody. And like uh, if you were black or a woman or if you were like, say, a Jewish professor who had dabbled in things in the 30s, which was very common to do, your life could be reminiscent in the 1950s. And it wasn't the case in the 40s. Your life wouldn't have been like room in the 40s things changed and then like in the 50s things got super duper heavy um so i think like we're just really bad at contextualizing time and because we think of the past as this known thing that we think that we that like we understand and it's one story it's a thread of a story that's how it feels to us now but really it was just a big mess of a huge amount of people with a huge amount of ideas and sometimes like the ideas were strong and weak and well, like, like, well reasoned. And sometimes they were just at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And, um, and everything it's, it is weird because you, you mentioned how, how things changed in, in just a decade or less, 
um, for certain types of people. Things could just flip on a dime. And do you, we talk a lot about the way technology changes us, um, kind of in the modern day, you know, with social media and, you know, the way we're trying to grapple with politics, with having, you know, like super old politicians who don't actually understand how to check their own email and everybody younger than 50 all lives online and all that stuff. So do you think that those changes are kind of accelerating or are they just, or, or has life always changed pretty quickly in a, in any time period? I don't think that things have normally changed quickly. I think that things changed very, very slowly until probably about 1900. And only then it's been up in a lot of different places. Like there was a piece written just recently by I think uh, uh, Derek Thompson, like of the Atlantic. He wrote about how if you if you like like uh, fell asleep on the streets of New York in like 1890 and woke up in like 1930 or 40, the whole world would have changed. Like it would be unrecognizable to you. You would see like like the buildings would have gotten so much higher. You'd have cars which which had had not existed before. You have plumbing and like electricity and planes going overhead and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like there were many new things that made a real uh, like impact on the real world, like real stuff being moved around. And I don't think that you can say the same if someone uh, had uh, fallen asleep in like 1970 or 80 and woke it up now. Cars still mostly look like cars and houses still mostly look like houses. And although we found a better way to manage the things that we're doing, we are not really creating new ways of doing stuff. Um, and like, I think that that's a weird thing to kind of wrap our heads around is that, um, and this is a, a big theory that's out there right now called uh, the uh, great stagnation, which is the idea that we had rapid growth from about like, like 1890 to about 1970. And then at like 1970, things kind of flatlined where our productivity, which is there, which is like the big hot word for this like theory, which is the, which is the way that we like amplified human effort suddenly flatlined where you, where you as one person stopped being able to do more with your life, like to move things around, to make connections, to move actual stuff that kind of flatlined. And it hasn't really grown since we had a boost, I think in the 1990s, but it hasn't really grown since. And I think that that contrasts very heavily with how we think things are going. Like it feels like a lot of things are changing because now we have phones and we have Zoom and we have social media and stuff. But thus far, it has not really translated into actual stuff being different. It is not actually helping us make totally new things in new ways. And there's a lot of theories about exactly why this is. But just to link this back to kind of probably what your listeners are actually interested in, like, <laughs> uh, like science fiction stuff, it's at the 1970s point when science fiction makes a pivot from being about like space and big technology and big stuff to being about cyberpunk, which is about trying to be more online where you have huge corporations that are evil, where there's no more governments, where we are being hit by crises and we can't like, like invent our ways out of these crises. Um, it's, that's also the same era where we moved from being like an industrial society to being more like uh, uh, like finance oriented. Yeah. Where we moved to being Wall Street and being 80s and, you know, like trading and speculation and stuff like that. That's a big like pivot point. And I find it really interesting to kind of think about 
what happened there. Like, like I, and just to be clear here, I agree that like cell phones are really cool. I agree that the thing that we're doing right now is really cool. That, um, and that there's a lot of fun things happening like in the software world, but the era of, uh, techno like optimism was born in an era where you had not just one cool thing happening, but like you had like, like engines and planes and running water and like electricity and radio and TV all really happening at once. It was like yeah. 20 things as opposed to a couple things. And so our computer is so cool that they, that they like outweigh one of those things, let alone all of it at once. I, I like I don't think so, and I think that that's why right now we feel a bit frustrated with technology, while still like wanting to claim that it's doing cool stuff and changing everything. Yeah, do you think that a lot of this kind of affects the way, um, you know, you mentioned the way it kind of changed uh, science fiction? Do you think it has changed fantasy a bit? Um, because we we kind of have we we have kind of different types of like high fantasy or epic fantasy or whatever you want to call it in terms of, you know, some of them are very almost more sword and sorcery where it's just an adventure kind of thing. And then other things uh, you kind of get these things where we really focus kind of in the books that you and I write, we really focus on the way change is affecting these fantasy worlds. And I don't know. Do you think that that kind of, do you think that digs into something that readers are really interested in? Or do you think that we're kind of, you know, just as the authors, just playing with things that interest us in fantasy worlds that we like. And, and maybe we're kind of almost running into like a brick wall in terms of uh, engaging a readership in this idea of changing fantasy worlds. That's an interesting idea. And I don't totally know. I think some of it is the age like of when someone started reading stuff and like you and I probably as teenagers read the high fantasy stuff because that is escapist, you know, like it's a chance to go off and have an adventure when really you're, you're like trapped at school or at home and you haven't seen the world. And you like the idea of a giant world outside of your own life where a lot of cool things can happen. And um, then you get older and you start to be more concerned with problems, with justice, with society and so on, and less concerned with like, is there a really cool big place that I could just have like a big cool playground? And so I think that you saw a, a lot of writers starting to come online, so to speak, around 2000 to 2010, where like fantasy and things like that started to get more robust and be used for lots of things beyond like escapism. Like that's when uh, Neil Gaiman like wrote the Sandman uh, series. That's when you see uh, Perdido Street Station and stuff like that, which was a landmark of its time. It kind of felt like to me, like I'm not the the hugest fan of that book. Uh, I like it for what it is, but like it, like looking at like to look back at how it was received at the time, it was like a really big deal. And so I feel like, I feel like as we age, we start to take these tropes and the stuff that we used before and we're kind of finding new stuff to do with it. If that makes any sense. It's like the great, it's like, you know, uh, if, if someone lived through like the great depression, they are thrifty for the rest of their lives. They use the things that they soaked up like in that era to live the rest of their lives. We are using the things that we soaked up as children and as teens and as adults to make sense of and try and create order in our lives. It's just my kind of shoot from the hip kind of thinking on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I was curious. We had mentioned earlier, um, we just kind of briefly 
talked about that you have a day job still. Mm-hmm. Um, but your books have also been really quite successful. Um, and I, I was kind of curious where to you as someone who has a family and to support and kind of, and has a good day job, where do you, is there somewhere in your head where you would say I would go as full-time writer or is, or are you very, or do you like having kind of a foot in the real world and, and more structure to your life? I do like having a foot in the real world. I do think that that that's useful. So here's like the, like the fake answer. That's fun. Uh, which is that, you know, I like to be challenged and to consume new things. And one of the things that challenges me to consume new things is a foot in the real world and having a day job um, that f- makes me do stuff that I wouldn't do normally. Yeah. But really, like, you know, the income from writing is so unbalanced and so, like, not dependable at all. It takes a huge amount of, like, management just to make the money smooth out. Yeah. And I wish that I could create like like an algorithm or something like that that would take this money and almost like I'm a dog having to be fed from like a machine, you know, like I'm on vacation. So I have to set up this thing for my cat. That's what I needed to do for me to make sure that like that we are smoothing out like the income as much as possible. So in 14 months, when like you're like in the lows uh, of your income, uh, you're not sweating bullets. Yeah. Um, and having a day job really helps me keep that even. And also just like, I do think I would go absolutely fucking crazy if I was just in the house all day <laughs> um, doing stuff. I would go absolutely bonkers. There were a lot of things that I that I thought of myself that the pandemic has proven not to be true. And one of them was if I was trapped indoors all day, I'd get a lot of writing done. I get a lot of stuff done. I do a lot of reading too. That did not happen. I guess same thing. Like I thought like, that if I ever went to prison, as long as I had a library, I would be just fine. And that was absolute horseshit. I went bananas. So I do think that it, that it is helpful to have something to manage and maintain and a way to build a cadence for your life. Yeah. That is, um, I think, a big word for me. And that like having a day job smooths out the like cadence of money. It also is like health insurance for my kids, which is another thing that I don't want to have to worry about. And like, really, like, it seems like the rule is, is that you don't quit your day job until your day job is keeping you from like making dough at right. Yeah. And so far, I have not crossed that line yet. And it would seem unwise to prematurely make that jump. It makes you think of that guy. What did he write? Um, he wrote the 9-11 book and he started to work in it. Uh, Natalie Portman. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. She was a big fan of his. They start to exchange like emails and he fell in love with her and he decided that he was going to leave his wife for her. But he really did not discuss this with like, Portman <laughs> that much. So then he did it and she was like, oh, you misread this entirely. Ooh. You don't want to be that guy to blow up your entire life for this thing that you have like imagined as possible. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to be that guy. Yeah. And I think it is almost easy to kind of get in the fantasy of, you know, you get you get your first contract. You maybe it's maybe it's more money than you've made before. Um, I, that certainly happened to me. And yeah. and I, I did really quite well. But the first five years of my career, I was still holding over uh, credit cards to try to pay my taxes. Yeah. You know, things like that. 
Yes. And it, it took a while, despite kind of coming in hard with a really good contract, yeah. it took a while for me to really level things out. And the only reason I didn't keep a real job is because I had never really had one to begin with. You know, I, I was making 10 bucks an hour. You were like a fry cook once, right? Didn't you do it like for like a day and you're like, I don't like this. Yeah. I remember that story. Yeah. Yeah. No, like it is weird. And then, you know, this sounds like some real horseshit complaining stuff. But when you like have like a good contract and a whole lot of money comes in, then like it is surprisingly hard, like with even the most planning that you can do to really set it aside and like work your ass off to make sure that you are setting aside for like like taxes and stuff that you can like it's still you can still screw it. Yeah. Um and you got and you can still be scrambling at the last minute to be like, oh my God, like I thought that we had like why did I set all this aside then? And it wasn't enough. Did I even get paid at all? I'm not sure now. So yeah, like having a day job definitely allows me to absorb those shocks a little better. And I don't totally see that going away. And also I like my day job. I mean it's it's fun. I'm, it is fun good stuff. Don't Google me. Don't harass me at my day job. I'm just a regular person. I'm some dead in the suburbs. Please don't. Right. Well, and that's like one of those weird things where, you know, people that, I, this is going to sound condescending, but quote unquote, normal people. Normies. Think, yeah. Right. They think that authors are, you know, famous. They think they're public. And, and in a lot of ways we are public people. Yeah. But most of us are still very much like, you know, they just, they just want to like, you know, go and take the kids to the park and, yes. you know, be able to do community stuff. Yeah. Um, I honestly, if, when I get Brandon on here, finally, I, I know that he's, he's one of the few authors I know who is legitimately famous enough in his area to be recognized constantly Yeah. because every time we've gone out for dinner, he's been recognized. Really? And that just blows my mind. Like, I'm curious to ask, Brian, like, so let's say you meet like strangers at a party that you don't know well. So do you tell them that you're a writer? I mean, I don't have anything else to tell them that I do. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I, because I have found personally that every single time that I've told someone that I'm a writer, it has never gone well. Yeah. It is always, yeah. It like, it feels a little bit like when you tell someone that you're in therapy and they're like, oh, I'm in therapy too. On account of that time that I did a lot of cocaine and shot my dad's dog with a bow and arrow. Let me tell you about that now for 50 minutes. And you're like, I don't know you that well. And I didn't ask. For that. Yeah. Um, so like every single time that, I've, that like I've done this, it has led to like nothing but sorrow. So now I just don't tell people like unless they know me, um, which is incredibly rare, like unspeakably rare. The only time that I've ever been like recognized once was for uh, Mr. Shivers. And it was like in 2011. Like I was a baby. I was like 27, 28 years old. And I was like pretty hungover and going to brunch with my family. And then this dude said, excuse me. And he looked at me and I was like, he obviously can't be talking. He was like, excuse me. So did you write a book? And I was like, yeah. And he said that he'd read it. He was had to move to Austin for work and he wanted to read a bunch of writers in the area and he picked mine out and he said it was, and then he had me sign the back of his receipt. It was the weirdest huh. thing. And that has never happened again. That's like, yeah. like it's not my least successful book, but it's definitely not my biggest and has absolutely never happened again where someone sees me and says, I was there. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. 
I, um, I was curious. I wanted to ask you about your first four books because you started off by writing what I would think of as quite literary science fiction fantasy. And then you kind of took a hard turn into epic fantasy trilogies. And I was kind of curious where that, like, what what made that happen? Um, well, mostly it was money. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a belief at the time, like in the 2010s, it felt like that horror and like literary fiction was going to be like a really big thing. And like people yeah. were going to get really serious about like, you know, we want a really serious, thoughtful, cerebral science fiction and fantasy. And um, I was also like, you know, like I was a kid. I didn't have a huge amount of like guidance on this. And I thought that I knew best. And I thought that there would be um, an appetite for this sort of weird genre bending novels um, about like America at different eras. Cause shivers is like the depression. Then the company man is like the roaring twenties. Uh, the troop is about like vaudeville in the 1890s. And then like American elsewhere is about the 1950s or 70s. And they're all riffs on these like eras and about that stuff. And I thought that there was going to be a real uh, appetite for that. Uh, and there was not. Um, I think that there, that there really is not a word that's been more poisonous really than genre. Yeah. Cause it seems like it's such a good idea. Like what if we make it a little bit of everything, but readers actually hate that shit. <laughs> um, and they want to know, to a certain degree, what they're getting. Yeah. Like there was a, a line about like movie stars um, and about how what makes them great is when they can be dropped into a role and without even like knowing the story or knowing their character by having them like involved in it, it sets like an expectation for what's going to happen to it. Like that's their brand, like the rock. Like if you drop the rock into a movie, that changes my expectations for what's going to be happening in this. Like uh Cape Blanchett. Yeah. That like, that's going to give me some idea about what it is. And that's kind of how I've changed my mind about to think about like marketing and genre and branding, um, which is not entirely positive. I used to think of it like Coke, you know, you would walk up to like the soda fountain and someone would say like, I just want more of this. Um, and think of it like a commodity where it didn't really matter what came out of the pipe as long as it was, you know, the kind of thing that I want to have. Uh, yeah. But that's kind of changed my thinking on that a little bit. Maybe it's just me getting older and uh, more resigned. <laughs> so do you kind of do you kind of regret having to go away from those type of books? Not really. Um, one thing that I will say, though, is that if you're trying to get a like like movies or TV, uh, you should write things in the modern era. <laughs> Because those will get uh, like option much faster because there's much less production money um, in in those. Like my like fantasy stuff has has sold uh, been optioned for stuff before, but not nearly with the like enthusiasm of like American elsewhere. All the other ones are uh, a, a period piece. You know, it's set in history times. With like hats and crap. Yeah. So that actually has like high cost to uh, production as well. But um, like the reason why I moved into writing like fantasy to a certain degree was that the real world, like I wanted to write science fiction and write something that was about ideas and about big stuff. But the problem was that the like real world had stopped making sense so much that it didn't make sense to try and write science fiction that could be measured as a predictive yardstick about the future because the future is just so bonkers now um so it made more sense to 
whole all the problems uh, like of the world to a new world that made that was as bizarre as what we're going through right now. That was the only way to do it. Do you ever do you ever look back at you know kind of um, what people in like the twenties thought that it the world would look like now? Yeah. and and go they were so far off. Yeah, uh, what what kind of what does that mean for the predictions we make about a hundred years from now? Well, there's that line that by uh, Yogi Berra, I think, where he said that predicting stuff is hard, especially about the future. But um, they 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 had a poll once about like um, it was in the 1940s or something like that, where they asked them like, by 1990, will we have a cure for cancer? And they were like, yes. And then they were like, will our planes and trains and boats all be powered by fusion or like uh, by like nuclear power? And they all said yes. And then it was like, will we put a man on the moon? And they're like, absolutely not. No. Um, and so like that was a much smaller jump of like 30 years until we got the man on the moon. Um, and so I think like it, it's is that it's tough to say. There's there's the um, the idea that if you put a lot of people in one big group, then they can then all of their wisdom can like accumulate until they can get kind of a reasonable guess at stuff. But really, I think that the lesson is, is that you can't predict anything more than three to five years out. And that's it. Like yeah. three to five years ago. I mean, like there's a lot of stuff happening right now that I did not think would be likely by now. Like this is something that I, I tweet a lot of, uh, that I, that I tweet about a lot, but, uh, so Goldman Sachs had a prediction for how sales of EVs would be at 2030 and at 2040. And by 2040, they're saying that 75% of all light of uh, light vehicle sales are going to be like battery powered with the plug. Uh, 75% is crazy, but like three to five years ago, I would not have thought that the like largest bank in the world would make that fit. But now a lot of stuff's changed and Ford seems to be all in on it. Um, so I don't know, like who knows? Like three to five years is basically the limit for this stuff. And past that, you can look at long-term trends like really long-term trends of like, will people trust this more? Are we going to be eating this? Blah, blah, blah. Like really big stuff, but specific stuff, I think is, it's it's really stupid to even try, frankly. Do you, d- does does having kids make you fear the future more or make the, the future feel more scary? Uh, it comes in waves um, because kids really are the first time that you really have to think of time outside of your own life. Yeah. Like, um, it really makes you think of life uh, outside of your own life. And I would say that, you know, we're always living through crises. Um, and when we look back on it, it does not seem like these, cri- like the old crises feel historical because we found a way to be smart and to get out of them. Um, but at the time, it did not feel like that. Like, if you live from the 20s to the 40s, the world was a horrible shithole. Everything fell to pieces um, and you would have like there would it would be very hard for you to predict a positive future. And like I do find that it makes you extremely aware of the lack of control that you have over this. Like one thing that I do think that we are struggling to adapt to right now as a species is the size of our species. How many people are out there uh, and what they're all doing. It's very hard to grasp this because we all live in our own like little bubble and that uh, and our phones really help us like do that too. But like, like if you think about China, there's like 500 cities, the size of like Atlanta, just a huge amount, like more than that, probably. I don't even know. But like, I remember that I saw a stat about just like how there's a lot of cities, the size of New York in China, but to us, like New York's the one city, it's the one, but they got like a whole bunch of them. 
Um, and so like having kids and being in the world right now, I think that the lesson to really sort of like absorb is how powerless you are um, to change the future on your own and to really affect what's happening. And I would say that your kids themselves uh, like make you learn that too. There's this idea that you can program your kids, that they're a blank slate that you can force your like ideas upon. And that is not true, at least not my, in my experience. Like kids come out with their own personalities. They're very different. Um, and you cannot really code them or build a path for them because they are going to figure out what they like and what they don't like. And so, yeah, I like really what it taught me was the like the scope of time and how little I can do about it and trying to adjust my own thinking to accept that and be grateful for it. Well, that's an interesting thought because I because it's a massive trope in fiction going back to kind of the beginning of time of, you know, like a father's expectation for his oldest son Mm -hmm. or or, you know, selling your daughter to the neighboring kingdom to try to make an alliance. You know, mm-hmm. there's this, there's most of human history, you know, people have been kind of commodities. And, and so you kind of, you have the, the owner, you know, the father or the patriarch of a clan or whatever, mm-hmm. who believes that they can, uh, and often does, uh, kind of control the lives of everyone, you know, that, that is under their protection or whatever you want to call it. And you just, you, even, even in the, the, the most kind of hardcore of, of kind of fascist society, I suppose, you can't control people to that level. And, and so I, I got to imagine that as, 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 as even being a dad kind of in modern day, you kind of, you got to struggle with that. You know, what do I, what can I control? You know, am I, am I trying to control them to take care of them or protect them? Or, or do I have to go completely hands off? You know, it's, I, it's as someone who does not have children, it, it, it's kind of a frightening thing to me. Yeah. And like, there have been a few studies that have read about this, about how like, basically you can try all that you can, but like really you cannot change your child's personality. Mm-hmm. You really cannot make uh, the impact that you think that you can on changing who they are. And so really what I think about like raising children now is like exposing them to as many things as I can to see what they react to and just, and to coach them and encourage them in trying to guide them through things that they like and how they can use the things that they like to improve themselves and learn more about themselves and other people like Jackson, like my oldest, uh, he has a dysgraphia, which means that when he writes, it does not like, it's been tough to get him to the place where his writing is legible and complete. It's very hard for him to write with handwriting and his like spelling is, is tough for him. Um, and I think reading is a little bit tough for him too. Like, I don't think that he likes reading because like when I was his age, I was inhaling and, um, there was, and so one thing, like I keep on trying to encourage him to read, like we now have time, like 30 minutes a day, 45 minutes a day where he has to sit down and read a book, uh, a chapter book. It can't be something that has like lots of pictures. It has to be a chapter book. And what's kind of funny is that he likes to like listen to books a lot. Um, but I want to make sure that he builds up the muscle in his brain. Uh, to be good at reading because you're going to have to be good at reading in life in general. But also there's been lots of things that I've read about how like reading helps build out your brain and builds up the learning muscles, which can be applied for lots of other things. So I've been trying to be proactive in that, but like there is an awareness there that, you know, like this might just not be his thing. Like he might just not love this. One of the things that he really loves, which is like, uh, I hated his kid is chess. 
He loves chess. Yeah. Uh, he loves to play chess uh, with his grandfather. He met his grandfather, and this is a point of some contention. The family doesn't really let him win a lot. I think Jackson's one in 40 or something like that. <laughs> um, so my dad does not pull punches for one reason or another, but he still likes to keep playing chess. And I, I hated chess because like of the pressure yeah. and the like awareness that it was a smart game for smarties. And I didn't want to be the dumb guy bad at the smart game, but he seems to really like it. And so like, I'm trying to think of like ways that we can use chess to build up more parts of his brain and his person and who he is like a uh, Twitch chess is a thing. I said, I was not going to get t- Twitch for my child, but here I am. Um, so <laughs> it's those sorts of things where you're trying to look at what is already there and what they already like and trying to use that as a way to help them find out more about themselves. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I definitely, when growing up, there was definitely the kids I knew um, that liked chess. And they always had a very particular thing that they were just a little bit different from me. And I couldn't ever grasp the whole thing. I, I couldn't be bothered to r- learn the rules. Right. I, I hated that there were rules. Like I like in my even as a child, I looked at this and went, this military encounter, there's no way that, you know, I, I, I should I should be flanking them. You know, like yeah. you can't flank in chess. Um, it was just, just kind of fun, uh, kind of fun, kind of like looking at the way I looked at it versus the way they looked at. It. And, and there was, <laughs> there was one kid who literally carried around a little pocket chess thing and would challenge anybody that even just made eye contact with him. Well, and he always won. That kid sounds like a weird asshole, but you know what? He, he was a good kid. <laughs> I, I liked him fine. And, and I'm very proud that later on in our teens, I wrecked his crap at strategy games. Oh, cool. Well, that's good. That's it good. was a good feeling. Does he listen to this podcast? Cause it's so, I mean, Oh, I hope not. I, I mean, um, but it, also one of those kids that looking back and I was like, just stupidly smart. Yeah. I would consider them much smarter than me, but man, everybody's brain is wired a little bit different in that way. The way they approach those kind of things. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I like, uh, it now it's kind of weird though, because like we had a few days ago, he was freaking out uh on the way to school like about to go to school he was like i'm really worried because i'm about to have a math like like a math test on fractions uh how to like divide fractions and how to uh multiply them and i don't think i'm going to do that good and so first of all i was like a it would have been nice for you to say this last night and now that we have like 10 minutes to get to school (laughs) but b let me see what i can do and so on the way to school we just played a youtube thing by some teacher explaining how it worked. And he was like, oh, cool. And then he got like a 95. And so that's one of those weird things where I'm like, it's going to be really tough to like, it's going to be tough to assess who is, who we think of as smart or not. We're going to need to give our idea of smartness an update because really what smartness used to be, because to me, I would have been like, well, I'm, I'm screwed. What it meant to me was that like, I was not paying attention in class and I didn't, I was not like responsive to this teacher that's what smart meant was that like there were a bunch of like little places that I failed at before this test happened. But now that all of our brains are on YouTube in some fashion, uh, it's a lot easier to find learning that fits you. Um, and so that kind of gives me a little like hope uh, for kind of kids today and that there's so much out there for them just to kind of grab and pick up. Um, I think that that's super cool. And I think it's going to, ch- that we're going to see some ideas change about exactly how we learn. But yeah, yeah, no. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You know, we had talked a, a couple minutes ago about kind of the massive the massive nature of the world that we kind of as individuals mm -hmm. have a hard time grasping. Um, and I, and I've talked with different authors on this podcast a little bit about the idea of kind of condensing ideas down into a book, mm -hmm. uh, into something that can be easily digested and not 20,000 pages. And, and I was wondering as somebody who is, who, who is so interested in kind of politics and climate change and tech and, and all these very modern kind of, ideas that you want to engage in um how do you decide how to boil ideas down into something that can be put into a narrative with a handful of main characters uh and you know accomplish something in a you know under a thousand pages when in a real life that same sort of storyline if you want to call it that mm -hmm. would play out across tens of thousands of people um and and on the national stage it would be huge yeah um so there was um a piece that i read recently that was really good on this it was it was very brief and it was about how all art and all beauty is that which cannot be compressed and like if you think about it in, in like uh tech terms if you take a file and compress it, then it is like a little piece of data that's much smaller that you can then extract into something much bigger. So art itself really is the way of taking something small, like small crude elements and like arranging them in a way that when they are consumed by the mind of someone else, that it then extracts it and let, like reassembles it into something much faster. What is fun about art and about uh, books especially, and this is probably true of computers too, is that in a lot of cases, it does not extract the exact same way each time. Yeah. Um, that each that like each person's extraction is a little bit different. Um, hopefully not a lot different. Because if you, I mean, like I'm not writing poetry here uh, that's super abstract. Uh, hopefully everyone is getting sort of the same ideas from what I'm putting out there. But really like the way that I kind of go about it is I, um, I, I usually start to kind of think of a world first and about like the nature of the world and sort of the big like tensions and sort of the magic that forms of the beating heart of that world. If it's God's uh, like in the divine cities and scribing in foundry side of the founders trilogy and this thing that I'm working on right now, which is more, uh, biological in nature. It's like a biological magic kind of a thing. And so I start out with that. And then I kind of think about what, what am I looking at with this? What is the question that I'm trying to examine with this? Like, and how does the question relate to the, to uh, the tension that's there in the magic? 
So like in the Divine Cities, like, like all magic is part of the gods, which are ancient and unknowable. They are part of the past. And so like I realized that what I was trying to do was trying to write a story about something that we have that we have always done as human beings, which is to use the past to reinvent the present, where we can call upon these old ideas and these old symbols and these old stories that we think were real and use them and like recast them to excuse the things that we want to do in the present while being and trying to like ignore the fact that the past is unknowable and it is lost and is separate from us and like distinct from us. And this was like inspired in part because this is back in uh, the Tea Party days where there was like an ad where like this guy dressed up like George Washington was super mad at like the federal government and didn't want to pay taxes. And of course, if you know anything about George Washington, two things he loved were the federal government and trying to get people to pay taxes to pay for the military. Those were like the two things that he was all about. So that was kind of funny where this guy was using this piece of history to excuse what he wanted to do in the present, which was basically to lower taxes and blah, blah. In the Founders Trilogy, you know, scribing is the magic of using something like code to persuade reality into doing something that it doesn't want to do. Yeah. Um, for example, this is, the, this is the one that I always pull out, is that you can write on an arrow you are not being thrown through a uh, like from a bow, but you are instead falling straight down at an extremely high speed. So then when it is loosed from its weapon, it flies in a straight line and it goes super fast. So it's like a bullet pretty much. And I realized that the tension at the heart of that is um, a lot of stuff that we've talked about already, which is about technology and about how we use use uh, technology to change the world, to take crude stuff and to make it into something different. And really what I kind of wanted to look at was like my own theory is that there are two that like human progress is a two-step process. There are the minds that we use to make technology. And then we as a society have to like be uh, reconfigured and like to like reinvent ourselves to manage all the benefits that those bring about. You have to be the right type of people to get the most out of these inventions. And like you can see what happens when we get out of whack because like, you know, in like the 19th century and the start of the 20th century, you had a bunch of like kings, basically, and like uh, like the monarchy and like the aristocracy and these old world uh, conceits trying to manage 20th century technology and not just the guns and stuff, but like railroads and phones and things like that that could be used to call all the troops to get them on the trains to drive them to the battlefields and put them in lines so that they could get their heads blown off by all these like machine guns. Yeah. And so it takes like trying to like reconfigure ourselves as a people to use these things better. And usually you can't, you like, like you don't get there like without a few tragedy. You just don't like, you have to burn yourself on the plate to learn how to handle it. But the problem with technology and like, when and like especially technology that operates at like the nation state level is that those tragedies and mistakes usually are hundreds of thousands if not millions of people dead and so like you know i wanted to look at this idea in foundry side about like what technology does to us and how it allows us to change reality and change who we are and to make people tools something and then i i could tell kind of that readers i think wanted me to continue on that bank to kind of have the next one be like two like two gay ladies pulling magic heists across a magic city. But like I realized like these characters like aren't stupid. Like they want to make things better. And so that pushed me towards thinking about if I were these people, how would I try and reform the city? 
and and like reform their nation. And this is something that we've talked about, but like most revolutions fail. Most revolutions do not go well. Like it has to be the exact right time, the exact right place. Things have to go exactly right. And so I wanted it to sort of play out like, like realistically, but also to drop in someone, to drop in like a character who comes to them and says straight away, I've been alive for thousands of years. I've done this thousands of times. This is not going to go well for you. I've seen this episode. Uh, do this instead. Um, and to see them like react to that. Uh, and that was a lot of fun to see basically much like someone trying to hack a computer, you were having these people trying to hack history and hack human, uh, conceits and human self-awareness to build a new type of society. Um, so that was a lot of fun. Well, and I think we see that in the real world constantly with kind of propaganda and Mm -hmm. the way that people try to get across their ideas. The example you used of, you know, (laughs) presenting George Washington as, as somebody who he very much wasn't. And, and so it's, it's a, it's a fascinating idea. And one I love playing with, I I love the idea. uh, I mean, okay. I don't love the idea of propaganda. I love the idea of writing and talking about it and exploring the way it works. No. Yeah. And I don't know, it, it feels, in, in a lot of ways, it feels like like that is just a bigger version of what happens in our own brains. You know, we always think about an event that happens in our personal lives differently than the other people that participate in that same event. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's an argument with your spouse or whether, you know, there's like a big to-do over an inheritance, you know, whatever, any kind of event in your life, you kind of regard it differently. And, and sometimes you regard it in a way that you absolutely believe that very definitely didn't happen. Yeah. And, and, and it's fascinating how kind of hum, the human brain and human civilization work like that. Yeah. I do think that like what it means to be sentient to a certain degree is to have a thing inside your brain that is telling you the story of what's happening in reality. Yeah. That like what we are living through is not really what is happening, but as I said, the story that our brains are telling ourselves is happening, which is very, very different. And I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff that you can play with there. Yeah, very much so. Um, we, we have talked quite a lot, uh, you and I and friends, uh, since kind of we met about kind of the uh kind of the nature of being a little bit of a public person as an author and you've always leaned very heavily into kind of a very performative aspect of whatever your public life is and i I was kind of curious whether i I kind of wanted you to to kind of mention what your theory behind that was but then also mention whether you still hold by that theory um because i i know your opinions have kind of changed a little over the years uh yeah like my theory is that we are trying to use like the media and social media and all this content that we're creating all the time to create an illusion of a lifestyle or a life to induce in people that we don't know that they should buy our books because that will place them proximal to these lives that are cool or good or is just something that I want to have. I want my life to be a little bit more like yours as opposed to wanting to read the damn book or like whatever it is. It's like buying the shirt or however you want to do it. Uh, I've always been pretty hostile to that idea that you need to know a person to read their book and that the idea of like knowing me is going to make that book any better because I am a boring dad in the suburbs. So what I've, what I've tried to do in the past was functionally to kind of troll my own fans and to invent this like insane like online person kind of like a weird twitter thing where i would sort of create 
uh, a fiction, like an alternate reality that was a lot more fun to read about. And I, like, I used to do this to you, like, like the Brian <laughs> fiction stuff where yeah. I would claim that you crashed your car because you saw a dog that was so fat that you couldn't stop looking. Uh, stuff like that. Uh, cause it's just more fun. Like that's like when you realize the uh, like potential of the internet is to invent reality. Like there's a lot of craziness there that you can run with. And for a while that was fun because we were creating like realities that were fun. And then the internet kind of got shitty where we were creating realities like that were absolutely bananas or hateful, or we were trying to basically use it as like tribal, like signaling, uh, where, Everything that you put online was supposed to like build like a brand that would say which team you're a part of. And like the whole internet just got a lot less fun. And also it just got kind of hard to keep up with. Um, and it became a lot harder to talk about things that I'm actually interested in for a bit, like, you know, and I started to get in things that were actually like real and serious. And I would want to talk about like, you know, what do we think that this thing that's happening right now in business means for like, you know, uh, the world. Uh, it's kind of hard to do that when you uh, your previous tweets are all about like drink and piss or something like that, um, or something like hostile, like actively hostile to being consumed by average people. But also, like that really didn't sell books. That was the thing is I think we've uh, talked about this before. Is that when it comes to like fiction, I think that the persona based marketing thing doesn't work because there's lots of like like writers that I've known who have become really big on social media. Because they've got a good feed, but their feed does not translate that well into their books, which are very different from that. So, like, being really funny on the internet does not really translate that well into, like, trying to get people to read my books about the gay coder magic ladies. Like, that just isn't a thing. So, um, instead of just talking about the things that I am interested in, which is why I'm still only at 6,000 Twitter followers. There you go. <laughs> so, I, I, I was curious whether you think because we did talk very briefly about kind of this idea of of you're just kind of a suburban dad at the end of the day and you kind of want to remain that way and i was curious how much the uh the performative nature that you leaned into heavily early in your career was that a kind of a protective measure for yourself yeah probably a little bit it was probably a way to like you know make sure that nobody wanted to come by and like touch this or like look in and see what's going on over here uh, yeah. to make it so crazy and hostile but also like you start to go to events and like people like you know you'd have to talk to like people as a professional person and you, it's really hard to do that with the feed full of, like piss drinking tweets but uh, which is not exclusively what i tweeted about that is a gross exaggeration i also <laughs> tweeted about never mind yeah like uh i did find that yeah it was just a little bit harder to maintain and i like but Part of it was also just like the like awareness that what we're doing is dumb. Like we are writing like made up stuff about like elves and stuff. Uh, and we're trying to present this as something serious that needs to be consumed. And it was partially like a reaction of like, I got to get on Facebook and hook my elf book. How can I do that? I have no idea. Um, and I don't want to like pay a lot of money for photos where I look hot uh, or something like that, <laughs> where I'm trying to be positioned as like a teen sex symbol. Because that works. Yeah. Uh, but that is not the that's not the train I'm riding on, for better or worse. That the, that one has left the station. Um, you, so yeah, you have worked out a lot over the last couple of years. Also got kind of fat though. That was uh, pluses and minuses to that. I was able to put on some pounds on my lift, but I also put on some pounds elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, like it's just a, like this is kind of a weird job to be in, and it's very hard to take it seriously. And when I meet someone who takes it incredibly seriously, 
um, it's a little tricky for me. And like, I, like, I think that's one way that we're different is that you have like a store, you're like shipping stuff and you are like trying to find new ways to do this stuff. And I just don't think that I would be very good at that whatsoever. I feel like, it, I mean, like I don't want to do customer service for my online store because I don't want to send like a fan, like an email that starts with like, listen, asshole, your, sh- your box is coming. So just, just relax. Because uh, that's probably something that I would want to do. Yeah. I I mean, to be honest, like I do those things because I don't want to ever have to get a day job. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I feel like I, I take I take the fact that I have a good career very seriously, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't like taking the writing itself very seriously because I I feel like that gets that gets a little weird because at the end of the day, like you said, I'm writing adventure stories, you know, like maybe there's more meaning to them. Maybe there's allegory there that I'm trying to sneak in. But at the end of the day, really, what I want to do is entertain people for, you know, 15 hours or whatever. Yeah. Like and that's that's something else is that, you know, there's a lot of people who take this stuff really seriously because they think that art is important. And I don't buy into that either. Like I like I think that we are tap dancing for money. Uh, which is just fine. Oh, you are going to get so many hate tweets just for that statement. What? I'd be like, no, uh, there's a tweet. Uh, there was not tweet. God, uh, a comment by Kurt Vonnegut about like, you know, how the, like all of the art and culture of the sixties and seventies was laser focused on trying to stop the war in Vietnam. And he said, and our full effect was about as significant as like a, like a banana cream pie dropped from a ladder. Um, that like, and I think that's a very tricky thing for artists to accept that there are many forces at work that are much, much larger than you and that what you are doing is like entertainment and you can suggest and you can, you can like create things that provoke thought. But like at the same time, there's not too many books like, like Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was like a big inspiration for the Civil War. Like that, like there's not a lot of those. And I also don't want to write them. Uh, I, I don't think that that's in the cards. Yeah, I, I it, it does seem looking back, you know, like a lot of the kind of the the what we think of now as kind of serious classic literature uh, tended to be written by very miserable people. Yeah, and I I I don't I don't want to be a miserable artist. And I, I feel like if you take art incredibly seriously, you're probably going to be a bit miserable. Yeah, I think that, that that's kind of true. But I also think that the idea of like all art being made by someone who's unhappy and miserable is a little bit untrue. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a yeah it's definitely a reductionist statement. But yeah, no, but like I but I get the idea that it does feel like a lot of the serious stuff that was being put up there was being put up by unhappy people. But at the same time, I also think that most people are kind of unhappy. So I mean, the odds are that someone's that someone who wrote a book at all is going to be unhappy. It's going to be at least reasonably high. Yeah, I want. See, I want to end up like I, I want to be like a um a, a kind of uh, Alexander Dumas kind of writer. You know, the the kind of writer who was so much larger in life, like in their own existence. Like, just that guy was genuinely seemed to enjoy being the most fi- famous writer in the world. And I, I kind of love that. I love kind of this, you, you see a picture of him and you're like, man, that guy, like, he just, he seemed to just be, I mean, in some ways, literally eating the world, you know, yeah. he just very much, you know, living life. And I, I kind of like that kind of artistic sort of, I'm creating these cool adventure stories everybody can enjoy, but also I'm making a lot of money and I'm enjoying kind of the fruits of my labors. Yeah, I can see that, but also like, there's lots of like writers who've gotten really famous and then stopped writing books and just started to make a living off of being that writer and being themselves. Yeah. Uh, and I don't see that that being something that I can do. I don't like the idea 
of a lot of people paying to be in a room with me just because they like me, that makes my skin crawl. I don't know how to do that. And I don't want to. So I'm going to, you know, I would much rather just like, I think it's the, like, I see a post every once in a while about how like, uh, like publishing used to be pay so much better and be so much more of like a better deal and blah, blah, which goes for like everything that has to do with like media at all, like, like journalism or whatever, or, or TV. I still think like I'm getting to like think through my thoughts on a huge scale and getting paid to do it. I'm like, this is still a pretty good deal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I'm, uh, I've been keeping you quite long, uh, but I like to end these episodes by asking every single guest, whether they, uh, what the last thing you ate that blew your mind was. That blew my mind. Um, there's probably something that I made, uh, and I said this to everybody, uh, in our little slack of like writers, you know, just make it through the day. It was a sweet potato Thai soup. That was very simple and very cheap. Uh, it had peanut butter in it and a whole can of curry sauce and two peeled sweet potatoes blended together there was like a touch of pepper in it as well but it was really good and it was also very filling for being like a soup that had like no chunks in it it was like a pureed soup um so that's oh yeah it had a can of coconut sauce full fat coconuts uh, honestly that that combination sounds amazing yeah it's felt like like illegal and like um and like it was one of those things that just does not sound healthy whatsoever and then when you put it all together you're like well now it's fancy thai stuff so I'm allowed to eat it. It's very colorful. It's very exotic. But it was great. Right, right. I um I did something uh, a couple days ago. I made way too much penne. And so uh, I ended up with a bunch of this leftover pasta. And then yesterday, I'm like, oh, what do I do with all this? I don't want to throw it out. And I'm like, oh, I've got a bunch of cheese in the fridge. I'll, I'll make some mac and cheese. And I made mac and cheese. And again, that it tasted illegal. Like I, I pulled a little bit of brisket out of the freezer, like a little tiny packet. And it, it just, oh, it was so amazing. So dang no, good. No, that sounds amazing. I, I love I love throwing together that kind of thing, like without a plan and then having it work. It just, it doesn't always work. But when it does, no, you just no, nail it. Yeah. I, I do like it when you're just going to toss some stuff together. That was fantasy author Robert Jackson Bennett. Thanks again to Robert for coming on to chat. You can find links to his social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at ryanmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, and Elijah for their backing on Patreon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.